The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision. But it's critical for any investor that their board looks after, do no harm to your existing investors. And, you know, I'm just outraged by some of the practices that we see. Hello, my name is Nathan Park and I'm the Investment Director and Co-Founder of Ethical Partners Funds Management. This is the 17th episode of the Good Investing Podcast and we thank you for all for your support. Just as a refresher on what this podcast is all about, on it we speak to business leaders, experts and entrepreneurs that invest in the right way. This can be done from a not-for-profit perspective or investing sustainably or with a particular focus on good governance. And today our guest is indeed a governance expert, Mr. Dean Patch, co-founder of Ownership Matters. So a little bit about Ownership Matters. It describes itself as a commercially savvy governance advisory service for institutional investors based on local insight and years of corporate memory. It aims to identify governance risk in Australian companies and the capital markets. The key areas it is looking at include company capital raisings, fair reporting, accountability, and ownership structures. We'll talk about some of these things today. Dean is the co-founder of Ownership Matters. He's the author of numerous opinion pieces, regulatory submissions, and speeches, and is a well-known media commentator on governance issues. Dean co-founded Proxy Australia, a boutique proxy voting advisory service and governance researcher in 2003. Following the sale of Proxy Australia in 2005, Dean led the Australian office through its various ownership changes, ISS Australia, Risk Metrics and ISS Governance Services, building it into the preeminent Australian provider prior to his departure in August 2010. He holds a Bachelor of Commerce and a Bachelor of Laws honours from the University of Melbourne and is a barrister and solicitor of the Supreme Court of Victoria. Well, good morning, Dean, and welcome to the Good Investing Podcast. Nice to be here, Nathan. Uh, so we've got a lot to cover today, and we've deliberately timed this edition of the Good Investing Podcast to coincide with the upcoming AGM season. I know it's your busiest time of the year. So the topics we're going to discuss today include capital raising lessons, CEO pay levels, the Directors Club, and how to get the best out of board and company management meetings, which is an important part of our investment process, and all the usual suite of questions that we ask all of our guests. So let's get into it. Let's talk about capital raisings. For the unacquainted listener, that's when companies need more equity because their balance sheet has deteriorated or they're looking to buy something or for a range of other reasons. And so, Dean, what are some of the recent trends that we've seen with regards to capital raisings and what are some of the issues with them? Well, the first thing to recognise is that Australia runs a really liberal regime of capital raising. So your board of directors can sell up to 15% of the company at any price they like to any investor that is not you. So our regime empowers boards to dilute you at a price that you wouldn't sell your shares at. So that is a huge potential negative impact on your stock price. And that's unlike other regimes which require you to do rights issues. And that is you have the right to take up your proportional share in capital raising. So this 
uh, ability in Australia is, you know, it's it's part of our strength as a capital market because it means that if we if a company really needs to raise money fast, they can do it via what's known as a placement. But if you've got a dud board of directors that are captured by an investment bank who aren't respecting the ownership rights of shareholders, well, you know, that can really slice you up. And so the trend in the post-GFC period was really towards placements, which was dilutive of particularly individual shareholders, but also small institutions. And we're really, really concerned about that because investment banks get paid an absolute fortune to underwrite these things, but they're not taking much what we term market risk um, because if you can get it away as a placement at a 20% discount, it's literally they're giving away free money. So in the GFC, I think Australian companies raised $100 billion, um, which was extraordinary. And it was you know fabulous that the compulsory super system and the strength of the capital market meant that we could you know, provide that liquidity to companies when, you know, it was pretty, pretty shaky. Investment banks got paid $2 billion in fees to underwrite that. But importantly, they weren't required to underwrite very much stock. So they got paid $2 billion worth of fees, but they were only required to take $2 billion worth of stock. They only caught with that, which subsequently was at a huge discount and they made a fortune on. So the issue really was that, well, how did they, what was the fairness of those raisings? I know I'm going into a bit of detail here, but roughly 45% of the money that went out the door went out by placement. So the trend since that period has been towards more equitable capital raising practices. Fees haven't really come down. So Australia's relatively expensive place to engage an investment bank, but it's critical for any investor that their board looks after, do no harm to your existing investors. And, you know, I'm just outraged by some of the practices that we see where, you know, you get some good ones where they do what's called patrios, which are, you know, an Australian equivalent rights issues. But in the in the uh, most recent COVID conniption, the ASX together with ASIC allowed that 15% limit to go to 25%. So we had companies like NextDC, for example, that raised money that they never have never deployed. They still haven't deployed it. They raised 25% at a discount uh, and diluted their existing shareholders. You know, it's absolutely terrible. So, yeah, that's a very long answer to I'm quite passionate about that it, because, you know, Australia's ability to raise Australian uh, issuers' ability to raise capital is a real strength. But, you know, we we have a really laissez-faire approach to raising capital and where a weak board is captured by a dominant bank, that can really hurt you. Um, and no one seems to pay the price for that. So. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really interesting area. And I think you've covered, you brought up a lot of topics um that I'm going to ask you more about in a moment. And, and I think, you know, as well, uh, when we talk about the Directors Club as well and I guess the limited pool of Australian company directors that are 
potentially doing the same thing at the same time because of that limited pool. I think that that plays into some of this as well. So maybe just to unpack a, a bit of um, your answer there, 15% of the issued capital can be issued. Obviously, the ASICs allowed up to 25%. Is 15% the right number? Is that too high? I guess it depends. It would be it, – it's not going to change. So that's the, the fundamental thing is that it used to be 5%. It went to 10 and then jumped to 15. So that was in probably, I think, the place of 20, it took 20 years to get to that. So I think the issue really is there's a case for, there's a case for maintaining it at 15 just because that, that's the sort of baked in expectation. But that's still no excuse for directors to go right up to that limit. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's 25% in the X300 in some of the small caps. Um, so, you know, so that, that, that really is the bright line. So for mine, it's like, you know, in a perfect world, would it be 10% uh, and we'd have more tradable rights issues in Australia? Yes. But... It, it, I, I just don't see that happening anytime soon. And in times of, of crisis where um, some directors would say, look, you know, we, we needed to do a placement because there was a very short window there, the markets were volatile, there was an unknown scenario like COVID playing out, um, we needed to do a placement very quickly, we could do that, we got the capital quickly. Um, how can boards protect, you know, shareholders where those placements aren't being directed to, um, could a rights issue supplant the placement in at those times of uncertainty? Could that could that be a realistic outcome as well? So the, they're always urgent and unforeseen. Number one, right, which is a little bit weird, uh, given that a lot of the raisings are done for the purposes of acquisition. So they knew that that was occurring. Um, why does it have to? Have, why do they have to have the money in overnight if it's such a good deal? Um, look, it, it it's also a little bit strange that you then subsequently find people having raised all this excess capital, then wanting to be lauded for buying back their own shares. Um, you know, think ANZ uh, recently as well. So. Look, it, it, it's one of those things where I think the market just looks through all through all the time because no one is really paying the price. So the cost of raising is never in the numbers that are reported to market. It's always netted off. So it seems to me that it's a um, it's such an important issue, but something that's so prone to capture because no one is actually. It's not on anyone's P&L. The fairness of your raising practices, the cost of your raising practices, never, it, no one is ever accountable for that. And, you know, we don't see it at the ballot box with the directors when they turn up because they're re-elected with, you know, massive landslides. So It's interesting that um, I, th- I think Commonwealth Bank uh, puts a slide in their pack that shows the number of shares on issue over a very long period of time, 20 years plus, um, versus peers. And the number of Commonwealth Bank shares has remained reasonably flat 
over a long period of time. Uh, and everyone wonders why that bank trades on a price to book value of two times versus the others at one times. And you know, maybe maybe there's some long-term recognition of a prudence of approach in terms of issuing shares at at times. Um, maybe it's hard to know, but you would think that that plays into it somewhat. Yeah, well, they haven't been very acquisitive post Bankwest yeah. uh, anyway. So, I mean, what can directors do? Like, they can if they have to raise by a placement, they can be in the room determining that the allocations go first and foremost to keeping existing long-supporting shareholders whole. Um, And there's far too many instances where investment banks are left on their own in the dark, diluting existing shareholders at the expense of their clients. So it's a classic agency problem and more full directors who employ the banks because, you know, the conspiracy theorists would say that, you know, they've got their free office at the investment bank or they're, you know, out on the harbour running around on the UBS yacht or whatever it is. Uh, and um, they just give the authority to the bank to determine who their shareholders are. I think that's an appalling situation. It's even worse, frankly, when you've got the CEO in the room determining the allocations which of their, you know, friends or supporters in the market are getting shares. So, you know, as a general principle, you know, rights issues or patrios should be the, you know, the baseline. Um, But, you know, frankly, institutions also have to bear some of the responsibility for not holding directors to account um, or holding some of the banks to account um, for really poor practices that have cost people a lot of money over a long period of time. Yep, agreed. Um, do you have a view on renounceable versus non-renounceable rights issues? Uh, renounceable, absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, there's a value associated with the right to continue to hold your equity in its current form. That has a value. Um, and, you know, if you don't have the cash to pay up, well, then the fairest way is to have them both renounceable and tradable. So there's a market price for that. Um, You know, even the way some of these shortfall auctions uh, for renounceable uh, are done, well, you know, not everyone is a bidder. Not everyone is able to bid into those book builds. I mean, it's a racket. It is a racket. You know, I mean, if you invented it in that way at the start, uh, people would say, what are you talking about? That, you know, you're able to sell someone else's shares or the right to buy shares, their rights, uh, why does there have to be one clearing price? Mm. Isn't your duty to get the optimal price for the entire pool? If someone wants to pay 40 cents for a right but the clearing price is 25, shouldn't you try to optimise the entire basket? I mean, it's crazy but it's just existing market practices sometimes are crazy. And just another thing that you you brought up before, this is the underwriting risk and underwriters in general. Back uh, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, there was a sense that the underwriter was taking some risk and you know, they were on the hook for uh, issuing shares that they might end up owning. It doesn't seem to be the case any longer. Um, well, that's why placements mm. and I think effectively underwritten by the weight of capital in Australia through super has meant that market risk has declined, uh, yet investment banking fees 
objectively and we run a series on that are actually going up in Australia. So, yeah, and there's it seems to be a competitive oligopoly in which the the fees aren't coming down. I mean, why in God's name are we underwriting DRPs? Like, why are we doing that? <laughs> you know, so as I say, like, I mean, there's a whole series of rents in the capital markets and, uh, you know, great examples of those uh, when it comes to underwriting fees. You know, I'm sure the investment bank community will hate me saying that, but, uh, you know, they are they are really the most expensive call centre operators in Australia because, you know, they're getting paid 2% of uh, a raising fee for calling up fund managers who've got to stay at their um, proportional uh, value. I mean, what a joke. So, yeah, look, I, I like the idea of, of, of refunding fees for deals that are that, that turn out to be poor uh, as well. And I've suggested <laughs> that, that um, <laughs> but that's never really taken off. Um, look, moving on to, to a, another topic, um, the Axie and Ownership Matters um, have conducted a CEO um, survey on pay. Uh, recently released, and um, it, as I understand, it looks at pay actually received by CEOs for most of the top 200 companies. What were the conclusions from that survey broadly? Well, so firstly, we've been running the survey with Axie for 21 years. So, you know, it, it, it's a little bit, the trends from year to year uh, are interesting, but they're not particularly Staggering. Um, so this year, the average, and there's a difference between the average and the median, um, the average realised pay, so the amount that um, uh, including the equity that has ended up in the hands of um, the CEOs, went up quite substantially, but it was solely as a result of the afterpay phenomenon. So the two CEOs of afterpay were issued options at $1. Of course, the rest is history. Uh, it went to $100 at the time that they were exercised. And so those guys ended up with $264 million in realised value each. Um, so that really knocked the averages around. The, 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 the broad story, if you exclude those massive headline numbers, is that Australia is actually has actually been quite successful in containing executive pay outbreaks. This is the bit that no one really wants to talk about. Whereas if you look in the US, it's insane. Of course it is. But even in continental Europe and in the UK as comparable markets, um, they look at our market and say, well, look, you're keeping base pay at, you know, less than inflation in cash. Um, and the trend is that CEOs are now paid more in equity rather than in short-term cash bonuses than they otherwise were. Um, uh, that is a really positive thing. And so, yes, are, you know, in, in certain companies, you know, is there a evidence that CEOs are paid without performance? Yeah, of course. But the trend is actually quite positive. What's driving that? I think it's everyone doing their job. You know, Australia is a pretty weird market where we have this say on pay resolution at AGMs. We have a two strikes regime, which incidentally the second strike is never 
activated to the point where a board will be spilled. But in the event that there are two successive years of 25% votes against the remuneration report, so every year a company is required to put out a report that shows the link between executive pay and the performance of the company and shareholders are invited to give their formal feedback to the board whether they endorse that report, whether it's shown the requisite link between pay and performance. Uh, It's been running now for more than 10 years. Uh, What I've observed is that it's become a talking point, a a talking, I think the right way to say it is that it's a focal point for a genuine interchange between professional investors and boards on executive pay. And when I say genuine interchange, boards are actually out there genuinely seeking the views of investors and not wanting to run the gauntlet of a non-binding vote, a non-binding vote, which is quite extraordinary, really. Like, I mean, it's a non-binding vote, but directors take your views seriously. And so my observation is that whilst there was a lot of scepticism in the early stages, Directors are actually doing a fair job, not a perfect job, but a fair job at adjusting pay packages to meet investor expectations. There are exceptions. There always will be. But we've eliminated golden parachutes in Australia. We've eliminated them, investor feedback. We've increased the proportion of bonuses that previously had been paid in in cash now deferred into stock. We've got quite rigorous hurdles on most LTI schemes. There are many other jurisdictions that don't have that. And the reason why that is happening, I think, is fund managers like yourselves doing your job, giving back that feedback, the large super funds playing their part and having a vibrant, quite competitive you know, proxy voting scene as well. I think that's a so interested media as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting that, yeah, one of the findings that average CEO pay has been pretty flat over 10 years, just saying, you know, your, your point is to the pay being contained in the sense of, you know, it hasn't increased relative. Um, so do you think that directors like investors having a say on REM or just a necessary part of the system that they have to accept? It's, it's an interesting, do they like it? I think they accept it. Now, they begrudged it early on in the piece because it was legislated. Um, They had to do this. But what's occurred, I think people have been pleasantly surprised because incentives determine behaviours. So the incentives that are put in place for management teams will determine how they allocate your capital because... You know, people often say, oh, executive pay, it's not material. Why are you bothered about a couple of million dollars? You know, we buy a piece of kit and it's $200 million or we invest in something. You should be focused on that. Well, it's very material to the executive. And so people are strange. You know, we do lots of things that we preference ourselves in the short term over deferring our gratification over the over the longer term, so it it's I think once there's started to be uh, 
a genuine dialogue between investors and directors about the role of incentives, we've seen real change where directors of some directors, not all directors, obviously, have leaned back and thought, well, actually, that makes sense. We're getting the feed that the sophisticated investment uh, feedback from owners, um, and we'd be unwise to run the gauntlet on that. So, yeah, I mean, that's a very long answer, I think, to a simple question, but it's I think there is an acceptance now. Whereas in the early days, it was, what on earth are we doing this for? This is embarrassing. It's just not adding value. But I think because the focus is really on, you know, the motivations of the executive team um, and Australian investors have used this regime quite judiciously. They haven't been crazy beating up directors and thumping their chest. There's a lot of quiet dialogue. Um, But, yeah, yeah. I think it's been a success. I really do. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, uh, yeah, and we do we'd agree with that as well. It's, it's just a a good part of the system, and it and it has its it has a very good and important place in the dialogue you have with boards and that we have with boards. Did you have a view on the ideal mix of LTI and STI, a short term and long term that should be paid in equity and or deferred? Is there? A, a- I don't. Um, I don't have an ideal view. It's horses for courses. There's no one size fits all. Um, you know, if I look at a group like Macquarie, for example, where they have, you know, a very large, healthy bonus pool, but it's deferred into equity and it was previously, you know, sort of seven years and they're now bringing it back to five, but it's worked for them. Um, you know, Goodman or another group. I guess the principle, I, I try and focus on the principles and that is would prefer bonuses to be paid as much in equity as possible whilst staying competitive. And for LTIs, minimum three years, I'm quite agnostic about what the right hurdles are. They depend, what the right mix of hurdles, they depend on what the challenges are for the business. So you want it to be some genuine outperformance of your competitors or peers. But I'm really open to incentivizing people to get the culture of the organization right or or to hit what might be a softer style target as long as they can't be, those targets can't be gamed if that's what the business requires. Like classically investors have an information problem. We don't know what's really going on. Um, So, yeah, as long as people are accountable for that, um, we shouldn't really be second-guessing them. So there's an element of trust. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't think the Australian market does it such a bad job. Yeah, look, we've we've had a view as well that uh, the more equity uh, that management owns and and also boards own um, goes some way to protecting the issue of shares at the drop of a hat, yep. you know, should the management team or board be have, have been imprudent with the balance sheet settings going into any crisis or any scenario really, um, that that does go some way to protecting all shareholders in the event that those things do happen or, or, or need to happen or actually in a preventative way as well. And we, we, we do talk to boards a lot about, you know, why don't the directors own more stock? Um, which it- yeah, it creates an, it absolutely creates an alignment that will protect you against dilution. It can hurt you the other way where people who don't have cash 
are reluctant to raise capital or to maintain dividends in excess of what is sustainable. Um, so again, it's a balance. I mean, I think the really interesting conundrum for a lot of boards is how to use incentive schemes to encourage companies to decarbonize. And that is something that uh, I think that we're, you know, we're grappling with as well. Um, we're looking for, you know, a genuine dialogue to emerge between investors and boards around that issue because, you know, we don't want there just to be a sort of greenwashing effect to say, you know, here's, you know, $5 million worth of stock to make progress around a plan that might involve considering buying an offset in 2035. Mm -hmm. Like that's hopeless, you know, but equally, you know, if you, if you don't provide the incentive, well, will management devote the requisite focus, I guess that's the thing, right? So yeah, we're, we're well, we, we've been a big proponent of adding uh, the right ESG components into short-term and long-term incentives, um, but they need to be able to be measured, and they need to be able to add value to the business and provide the right behaviours. Yeah, pay, paying someone to maybe look at a plan that might do something, not enough, yeah. but where there's a proper. Uh, linkage between the, either the opportunity in the business or the or the risk around decarbonisation in particular, um, some of these things can be measured now, and and we would argue that without without linking those things, there just won't be the required effort, and it might might help shareholders in the short term uh, just fine, but the medium to long term shareholder won't be serviced by by those short term behaviours. Yeah, I don't think anyone has the answer at the moment. Mm. Like I think going back to the principles and that is that if there's a genuine interchange between directors and investors about what the right metrics mm. and measurements should be, we'll get it more right than wrong. There'll be lots of missteps, but I think that's going to be a trend that's going to emerge over the next five mm. years where we'll see in the pay packages of executives like, you know, milestones that are expected to be achieved uh, on decarbonisation. Um, so that'll be a really interesting thing. Like, you know, we're struggling with what the right metrics are. Um, we don't have a view, you know, aside from, you know, that it, they shouldn't be able to be gamed. They have to be real, verified. You know, we think that this say on climate resolution that's emerging as well. So it's not compulsory, but some companies that are carbon exposed are putting up a specific climate report to inform their investors about how, what progress they're making. And they're putting that up for a non-binding vote, which is a positive thing. We really support that um, because it hopefully will lead to a whole bunch of norms around the type of metrics that are reported. It doesn't seem, if that becomes entrenched as I expect that it will, it doesn't seem like too much of a hop, step and a jump for that then to become embedded in those metrics, those norms to become embedded in um, pay packages. So we're just hoping that they're going to be the right metrics and norms. Yeah, and and it's interesting some of the sound climate votes that have emerged in, in these businesses that have hard to abate emissions um, and the, the current shareholders are saying, hey, you're not doing enough, which, yeah, I think that that, that could be a – uh, remuneration report style 
kind of development that just becomes embedded in how shareholders M- see my view companies is that acting. W- that will be eventually, mm. just what time frame. And just on the question of abatement, like, I mean, the, the, the fundamental thing there is that, you know, are they real? Like the veracity of the offsets is... Is, is just such a fundamental issue, which it's so difficult for any investor from the outside to verify. Mm. It really is. And so, again, you're, you're trapped in this information vacuum where there's no assurance, you know, A-S-S-U-R-A-N-C-E. There's no assurance that the plan is both credible and actionable. Um and that's difficult because as investors, we rely on, you know, accounting norms, which are assured through uh, audits. Well, here we're being fed, I guess, a promise that we don't know is capable of being delivered. It may be, but it's very difficult to be you know, absolutely 100% convinced on that. We've got to take people on the word. So it often comes down to, you know, a question of trust, you know, do we trust the board of directors to do the right things by us? And, you know, are we holding them to account where we're not? So, mm. And where are their actions actually matching the, the words? Um, look, just turning back to um, the current bonus year, there's um, the, there's uh, record payments of bonuses. Do you think there's a an element of a bit of payback by boards to executives who maybe didn't, reach a bonus in the in the first part of COVID in the 2020 year and the kind of bit of payback now? Do you think that's a phenomenon that's going yes. on potentially? Yeah. So we had record number of zero bonuses um, in the COVID year. I can't remember the precise number, but it was might have been 60% or something like that. Um, so that was never going to fly forever. <laughs> so, yeah, there is a make-up pay component uh, for that. And, um, yeah, but it's, you know, in the specific instances, I just don't want to name names, but, you know, um, there's plenty of instances where companies, you know, paid bonuses without outperformance uh, and, you know, there's a mechanism for that. I mean, th- through COVID, one of the things that I just really still scratching my head about are the companies that lent so heavily on JobKeeper as a tailwind to their earnings and still paid executive bonuses. Like that was completely wrongheaded and didn't return the JobKeeper amount. So, you know, I mean, humans are weird. <laughs> like we're very, very strange. Sometimes when we have an opportunity to, you know, do the wrong thing, we do it, you know, because there's no consequence of doing that, you know. So. Mm. Yeah, and I guess that the holding people accountable for those things is uh, part of your job and um, and and certainly part of ours as well. Just on a on a another um, report that you wrote um, a little while ago now called "Many Are Called and Few Are Chosen," uh, one of your favourite topics, I know. Um, Obviously, the title's inspired by the fact that more than one in three director appointments are made from within the existing group of ASX directors. What do you say to those boards who say, oh, look, we need experienced people. Um, We couldn't possibly have a board full of 
you know, newbies and new recruits and people who haven't done this before, is there an argument there that boards, you know, need experienced directors so we have to pull them from the existing pool or should they be somehow more willing or incentivized to, to train up new people? I mean, everyone starts somewhere. The existing pool of directors weren't always directors, I'm sure. Um, so what, what's your response to that argument? So firstly, I'm thrilled that someone else has read the paper. So uh, terrific. Uh, Kudos, uh, Nathan. So it's a paper that looked at the trends in uh, the appointment of the non-executive director pool over the last 15 years. And so that stat that you pulled out was one of my favourites, which is inside appointments. So your likelihood to get a position on a vacant position on an ASX board, one of the biggest factors is your incumbent position on another. Um, so, yes, it is true. That is a valid argument. You want someone who is uh, potentially experienced, but it's not an excuse for maintaining people well beyond their uh, ter- useful term. So, you know, the the non-executive director pool is ageing. You know, it has been pale, male and stale for a long period of time. So it's – there is an example, but it's not – sorry, there is good reason, but it's not an excuse. And so the the biggest single reform in the composition of – the non-executive director pool has been the introduction of women. Prior to people openly talking about the fact that there was gender discrimination in non-executive director board appointments, people would run the argument to say, oh, look, there's just not enough experienced women. And so once they opened the net, they were able to find these experienced women. So I think, again, if I just go back to the principles here, the whole process of appointing non-executive directors, it's a little bit like how they choose the Pope. You know, it's, you know, it's some clandestine meeting, but it's not an open job ad. Relational networks play a huge role and which, again, is human nature. You know, I've worked with this person before. I know they're good. Why on earth would I, you know, consider anyone else? But it's also a bit of a cop-out for not broadening your search. It's a lack of imagination, just in the same way that people, you know, chairs of yesteryear couldn't be bothered seeing whether there were capable women who could perform those points. Oh, they just don't exist. There are no women in the mining industry that could possibly add any value. Um, So, yeah, but those processes haven't changed very much. There are still relational networks, there are still agency problems. They have these non-executive director recruitment firms who, you know, it's 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 a classic sort of problem and it's important. You know, non-executive directors, oh, sorry, uh, institutional investors do this to themselves. We often complain about directors, but how many of us put people up? You know, oh, it's not our job, you know, uh, and so it's, it's sort of no one's job to find good, capable people and the system, sounds like a conspiracy, but the system can often keep people out 
particularly where they don't, where where good capable people aren't part of those relational networks. You know, we 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 loosely term it a club, but there's far more than one club. Mm. There are many, many, many clubs. They're relational networks of people who know each other that exclude you by definition. And that's sort of weird because often those relational networks are not big owners of the company. Mm. It would be fine, for example, you know, if you're the Wilson family who own a huge chunk of Reese, great company, very long-term focus, and only people in the Wilson family's relational network are invited onto the board, well, you're sort of along for the ride. But there are many companies on the ASX where the directors don't own enough shares to exceed their annual cash fees. And yet they're keeping out capable people. That doesn't really uh, gel for me. So solving that problem is, you know, it's quite an intractable problem. Um, It's been a huge plus, I think, you know, that we've opened the search pool to women. There is an emerging problem where women are more likely to be overboarded than men. Um, So, again, there's a sort of lack of imagination about recruiting new women into the pool, giving them their first role. But, and there's just as many dud women directors as there are dud men directors, frankly, but at least we're taking gender out of it. And so the next thing really should be about performance because there are many, many directors who their total shareholder return over their journey um, really doesn't warrant their re-election, yet uh, they're re-elected with thumping majorities uh, every time they come forward. So we haven't quite, I think, we haven't quite matured as in a capital market where institutional investors play their role every time to move boards on. In crises, yes. You know, where the near-death experiences, there's often a new crew come through. I mean, if you think about Woolworths, for example, where the new chair came in post the master's uh, catastrophe uh, and really changed the game there, uh, made a great contribution. So, yeah. Yeah, one of your findings in your study was that the turnover of underperforming boards isn't that different to outperforming boards. That's the killer piece. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So what you would expect in a, in a proper functioning market for non-executive director talent that boards of companies that underperform should be moved on faster than boards that of companies that outperform. We did the numbers over a 15-year period. Some may say that is too short, but they're pretty much like for like, uh, and that's quite an indictment. So that's to say that, you know, there's really no penalty uh, for underperformance. So, you know, in a proper cap- functioning capital market, you would expect that the renewal rate of the duds, the you know, the companies collapse or have their near-death moment, 
the board packs up and moves on, but they renew it pretty much statistically the same rate as all other companies. So, yeah, it's a bit of a wonks argument, but it's uh, it's true. So the numbers don't lie. Yeah, and, and, and going back to your point about institutional investors, you know, maybe – institutions should be more active in putting people up to boards Correct, and, yeah. um, you know, and boards, you know, not, not executives. Um, you know, we see the chair every year for up in around AGM season. We talk about issues, but the non-executive director pool usually isn't seeing investors as well. So I think no, that's yeah. interesting as well. Although Australia is better than many other markets where it's not just the chair that gets out now. It's ahead of Remco and people mm. are working that out. But yeah, it's true. I mean, it's never who you fire, it's always who you hire. So if you're going to complain about a board or a NED and threaten to vote someone off, great, that's one part of the equation. But what will change things going forward is to have a good, capable person mm. to effect change. And instos do a lousy job at that. You know, they'll often throw a name up and then say, oh, they didn't take my suggestion. Well, that's not good enough. You know? mm. Yeah, we should should be using the weight of vote that that you hold in the in the shareholding that you have in the company to to affect some of those things. Yep. Absolutely, or or um or stand up at the AGM and and say something. Yeah, I mean, well, no uh, one stands up at AGMs. Uh, that's true. <laughs> that's true. It's pretty much a dead rubber, I think. Just changing tack a little bit here, um, your team and, and yourself that obviously do, does a lot of um, motivating, motivational interviewing principal work around talking to boards and obviously, you know, as a fund manager, you know, in our investment process, understanding people and understanding companies is key, being a bottom-up investor. Um, we, we've done a lot of work around that um, and with you guys as well um, on understanding how to interview boards and how to interview management teams so we're getting the right sort of answers. Um, can you just explain the importance of that from your point of view and um, perhaps some of the principles that, that, that you think are really important in terms of when you're talking to people and, you know, how do you, how do you make sure they're giving you the right answers? Yeah, that's the challenge, isn't it? So the first principle is that um, companies are run by people and people are vulnerable, flawed, brilliant. Uh, there's an entire spectrum of, you know, uh, human variations. But no company is the same. You know, the classic statement is a company, there's no, no soul to damn, no neck to hang. It's people who make the decisions on behalf of the corporate entity. So understanding people, their motivations, their, whether they are providing you with accurate information that you can use to work out whether you can trust them is the key. It's the key to our job. It's probably one of the keys to your job as well. So my Focus is always on uh, creating an environment or a conversation in any interview, if we're talking to a chair or a CFO or whoever it is, about I'm thinking about can I trust this person? And trust is something that you should not grant lightly. It's something that 
the other person who is gaining your trust should be prepared to have tested. Um, and so through time, we've fell into, fallen in, sorry, we've fallen into a sort of interviewing style which seeks to elicit better information from people. You don't get better information unless you ask open questions, unless you're genuinely curious that you are wanting to find out what is going on. Our interviewing style also seeks to minimise the number of dud meetings, you know, where people are just being transactional, talking in PowerPoint presentations at you. They're just going through a script. They're not really talking with you. Uh, and our approach also is, you know, trying to use some scientific techniques to detect deception and lies. But fundamentally it's about respecting the other person. So we use a motivational interviewing style, which is low status, curious, open questioning. We're observing whether people are genuinely in the conversation with us, what might be barriers to that. We're looking at people's styles and seeking to engage them where they are. That's our approach. We've spoken about this a lot, but what you're genuinely looking to do is to find out what is making this person, not the company, this person across the room uh, engage with me? Are they? Do they have a shared view of what the situation or the problem might be? If not, what's their perspective? How do you find that out? And so our approach is um, it's about trying to understand what's going on with the person rather than assume uh, from their CVs or their position or their status or their PowerPoint presentation. Um, so we're constantly looking to respectfully ask questions in a way that will help us do our job on behalf of investors about whether we can trust the person. I mean, it, if, you, if you had someone across the table from you and said, can I trust you? <laughs> it's quite a provocative question. Why should I trust you? How do I ask that question in a way that creates a relationship that is useful uh, to me? So, because it's it's a voluntary arrangement. If you're interviewing a chair, a CEO, someone critical in that organisation, they don't have to answer the question. In fact, many of them don't. They make an art form of deflecting. You know, you listen to every politician that you've ever heard, you know, I mean, they just don't address the question. Can I firstly say, and then they go off. And so you've got to realise what's going on if you're going to make your meetings more productive. You've got to realise what's going on in the conversation, but also you've got to stay focused because ultimately your job is to give other persons, other people's capital, who've worked hard for it, to someone else to deploy. So your trust filter, you know, you, you, have, you, you have to apply it. You just can't assume because they are a captain of industry or have been high, performing well in the past. There's that constant dance of testing people, but from a respectful point of view. So again, very long answer. I'm sorry, Nathan. 
No, they're good. They're good answers. They covered the next ten questions I had anyway. So that's that's <laughs> that's actually perfect. Um, what about those vague, non-committal answers where someone's trying to take you down a path? You mentioned asking open questions and and seeing where they go with it. How do you kind of narrow them down to something that you really want to know? So the, when someone is uh, leading you up the garden path the critical thing to do is to bring them back into the room. When people are situationalising, oh, the weather meant that we couldn't meet our earnings guidance or, uh, some, you know, the dog ate my homework, whatever it is. The key is actually uh, focusing on the person. What was your role in the situation that occurred? Bring that person back to the room because then you can get a view about you're paying them to be your agent effectively. They wouldn't see that. But they are your employee. They are your servant. Are they discharging that agency? Do they feel a sense of personal responsibility and accountability for that? And so bringing them back into the conversation, how did you feel? You know, I remember talking with a director about uh, an accident, a workplace accident that occurred. Big deal. And they started, you know, several people were killed in that and they started talking about the findings from an external consultant and uh, and I, I was like well wow you know it seems that this accident just happened it was magic and you know so I asked the question what was the name of the person who was killed how did you feel when you heard about that what did you do and you know people want to be understood and so if you can ask that question in a non-provocative way um, you can really then get a sense about whether whether there is likely to be a response that you know whether there's a sense of accountability or personally so you know I mean there's a whole bunch of techniques I mean you know but some in sometimes uh, Nathan being lied to you know but, not everyone tells lies, but being deceived. It's actually a shortcut from an investor's point of view. Say, okay, great. This person is actively deceiving me or they're deceiving me by omission. I keep asking this question. They will not provide me with verifiable information. What am I to make of that? Well, well, that's good for you because it shortens, it answers the question, can I trust this person? And there are many instances where you're going to have to say, no, I can't. Absolutely. I, I encourage the team to ask questions that we, we already know the answer to and just to see what the response is. And in a case recently, um, there was a, a business that was in here pitching for new capital. They answered a question that we knew the answer to uh, by not answering that question directly and taking it down another route so we we just declined to participate in that that's right. in that raising so it was a you're right it was a really easy shortcut as to the fact that we didn't want to own shares in that business that's um, right because you answered the trust question or they answered it for you by not answering your question absolutely what, what are some of the common investment mistakes around governance that, that you've seen um, or, or the most common ones um, that you've kind of seen people trip up on over the years? I think there's this belief that people will do the right thing. 
And that's not been my experience. People's motivations are many and varied. And so verifying people's motivations is really difficult. But the assumption that just because there is a name director or that person has a good reputation that they will necessarily do the right thing by you, I think that is the most common error. It's an assumption that's never tested. Um, yeah, I, 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 I just sort of go back to sort of fundamental human behaviour and that is that, you know, we deify, you know, you pull out the fin review, you look at all these people who are lauded, you know, they've got their... AOs for services to investment banking or to, you know, company directorships. And we we assign a certain level of competence but also motivation and morality, which is untested. And crisis often tests, tests that. And, and look, the reality is that people don't always do the right thing. Yeah. We, we often see it around change of CEO. So you've got an outgoing CEO who wants to make results look great and you've got sometimes an incoming CEO who wants to lower expectations a bit. And so the role of a board in that in, in that scenario is something we concentrate quite a lot on in, in the governance of that change and how that's being handled. And sometimes maybe the CEO is a little bit smarter in the sense that they've, they are able somehow to game it on both sides and the investors are the loser. Yep. So it's yep. something that's that- right. You know, the classic play is your kitchen sink, the first result, take a whole bunch of write-offs, have your bonuses set off the baseline of the new normal um, and the directors aren't awake to that. No, I don't know how they're not awake to that. And then, of course, they are performing in three years. They've got away with an outsized, you know, bonus package. Yeah, and the, just that, that critical role of, of the great boards, and there are some great boards um, who have stewarded businesses through all sorts of changes. Um, yeah, our view is that investors need to put much more weight on that than than they probably do. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's an intractable problem. So. Um, look, just shifting gears a little bit, these are questions we ask everyone. Um, so we're just going to dive straight into that. Um, what's, what's the most important aspect of good leadership that you think is overlooked? Overlooked, or maybe just just a really important aspect of good leadership. People being really focused on other people is the critical thing. Um, yeah, it's. I think if I think about people I admire, that who you know I would say are good leaders, they're also good people. Uh, so they have both compassion and empathy, and they're prepared to sort of do the right thing. Um, and that their scorecard is not financial. Like I think that is the, that's the key thing. Like it's great if, you know, you have both things going together. But, um, yeah, the doing the right thing is not necessarily doing the right thing for some sort of short-term gain. Yeah. Um, so. And, yeah, I think the stock market can overlook that, frankly, <laughs> in yeah. times. Well, um, we big people up, right? Yeah. So there is this sort of industrial complex to – you know, as I say, deify executive management and executive directors. And look, experience would tell us that CEO and non-executive director performance is distributed normally like 
every other occupation in life. There are dud directors and dud CEOs, yet, uh, you know, we're asked to believe that these people are, you know, phenomenal and somehow we're surprised that they turn out to be corporate psychopaths or bullies or sexual harassers or deeply flawed. And, well, that shouldn't be a surprise. And so when we see people who, you know, are good people as well as, you know, that's that's lovely, I love that. Yeah, mm. yeah good. And, look, you've been um, involved in a few very fast-growing organisations yourself. So how do you, as a, as a business grows, as an organisation grows, how do you make sure that it doesn't become kind of this institutionalised and, and all that bureaucracy creeps in and you, you stop having all of the kind of benefits of a, of a smaller organisation as you, as you grow bigger? How do you stop that from occurring? I think you've got to keep the right, the focus on people. So, you know, I was involved in a business that sold the Australian arm to a global business, but we were able to maintain our culture and, you know, part of my role was in keeping the dickheads out. So, you know, I insisted on having control over who we hired. That's the main thing. Um, yeah, we don't do a lot of meetings because everything's on a sort of, you know, pretty much an open book. Mm. But, yeah, I think once you start getting that um, formalised, look, I don't do big organisations. I just can't. I, it wouldn't really fit us, but maintaining a culture is really hard. You have to celebrate it while you're working with really good people. Like you have to celebrate that and, you know, you're going to have your ups and downs along the way, but it, it makes a real difference if you have really good colleagues to share the ups and, you know, the downs and we've been extremely lucky to find those people and to keep them. So, you yeah. That's good. And and when you're faced with two equally qualified candidates, how do you determine which one to hire? Uh, always on values. Always. How do you how do you determine whether what people's values are? Well it's a bit of a crapshoot, but um, that's a little bit more art than it is science. So yeah, it's one troublesome personal personality in a small organization wow it can be really really difficult so yeah got to keep the idiots out good answer all right just got a quick quiz here to finish up um and you can either say one word answer or, okay. or a longer <laughs> one up to you um but uh i know these things are uh, things are important to you which job keeper scheme do you think was better designed, Australia or New Zealand? Oh, New Zealand, easily, <laughs> easily. Well, it, it didn't pay $40 billion to people who didn't qualify. So, yeah, New Zealand. Good one. Um, there's an expression we all grew up with, silence is golden. So in a meeting with a company, what is the longest stretch of silence that you have allowed to happen or experienced? Ooh, I don't know the exact time, but, yes, I love a pregnant pause. Um, 20 seconds, maybe 30 seconds, you know. I'm mean, but I'm not nasty. (laughs) (laughs) That's a reasonable pause. Um, And are ESG metrics more important for senior executives in short-term or long-term structures? Uh, Both, both, absolutely. But what are the right metrics? I don't know. Um, I think we're going to experiment, make a few fails failures along the time but you know it's going to come and just lastly who out of mickey mouse or donald duck once had an afterpay account uh that'd be 
Mickey Mouse or Miguel Laucha. So we famously worked out that Afterpay had no know your customer checks. So we set up a fake account in the name of the Spanish for Mickey Mouse, which is Miguel Laucha. He lived at One Disney Way in Perth, which was an address that didn't exist. And we were able to get an Afterpay account and $250 worth of um, champagne. We also set up uh, an Afterpay account in the name of a fictional cat (laughs) and bought a cat scratcher as well. So that was a lot of fun. (laughs) Do you feel feel somewhat vindicated given the, um, not the executive pay packets, but the the pain that's playing out in the financials of buy now, pay later? Oh, look, I'm incredibly grateful that we had a ringside seat into the madness of the buy now, pay later sector. I really am. Um, uh, what a story. Like what a story, boom and bust. And I'm really proud of all of the work we did in showing how unsustainable the accounting was and how ropey some of the practices in that sector were. But, I mean, you know, uh, you know, the Afterpay one, you know, they, they were able to sell. Good luck to them. Like what a story, what a story. So It's a fascinating one. I'm sure we'll be more we told over, over time as well. Yeah. Look, um, Dean, thank you um, for taking the time, for being a guest on the Good Investing Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. No worries, Nathan. You're most welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au.